want to share a little bit of my testimony tonight, if uh, the Lord will let me. And uh, I'm Brother Blair's son, and I'm not worthy of that title, but I am. And um, I was born at the ranch in Rehoboth, and I grew up there until I was about seven years old, and we moved to Waco. And uh, I remember growing up in a house where the presence of God we feel today was a very familiar thing. And I remember feeling the love of God, the presence of God, the peace of God uh, every day. And I loved the presence of God. It was, uh, it was the most dear thing to me. When I was seven years old, I had an experience with God, with the Holy Spirit. I remember being on my knees with my face buried in the comforter uh, after our family tamim time and just feeling the presence of God hovering over me. And God would speak to me. God would speak through me. He would reveal things to me. Some of my earliest memories were, were loud noises. <laughs> I remember going for a walk with my dad at Rehoboth, and he took a squirrel rifle that sounded like a, an atomic bomb to me. And uh, I remember being terrified of that. But I remember feeling the closeness of the relationship with my dad, and it was... Uh, a place of safety. It was a place of comfort. And um, all my early memories centered around my father. The first crappie that he helped me catch over the side of a boat in the middle of the night, I, I remember, you know. I remember deer hunting. And, but most of all, I remember that God was always first. We would go in the car, and we're going to go on a fishing trip, which I really like to fish, and... We didn't have cell phones, and we didn't have uh, electronic devices, and Dad would begin to pray, and you could feel that presence, and he would stop the car, he'd turn around, and he'd go home, you know, and he'd say, There's, I've got a burden on my heart, you know, and I just, that's my burden tonight. God, I, I could tell you horror stories about my life, the life I did not live for God, uh, that would rival science fiction. <laughs> and I could tell you about the miracles God's done in my life, and you, you probably wouldn't believe them. But I want to articulate something that maybe could help you and that would bring glory to God. And if it doesn't do that, then it's not, it's not of any value. If it doesn't tear down some stronghold. And so I grew up in the context of the community in Waco. By the time I was 14, 15 years old, I was embroiled uh, in what I thought was terrible sin, and it was. You know, I, I wasn't honest. I became a habitual liar. I hid things from my parents. But working in concert with this was the Word of God, the love of God manifest through my parents and the people of God, and so I was very torn. I would tell you even throughout my years in the world that my dad was my closest friend. And of all the things that I felt like I'd lost, the relationship with him was the, was the worst thing I ever lost. But by the time I was 14 or 15, I was carrying a burden of guilt from lies, deceptions that I would weigh. And I would say, could I tell the whole truth? You know? And as soon as I thought maybe I had the courage, the devil would remind me of one more thing. And I thought, I can't do this. You know, and I had a false perception in my heart that people thought I was inherently good. 
and if they really knew who I was, they would not think the same. So at 17 years old, I, uh, uh, I ran away, and uh, I went to um, Colorado. I worked menial jobs, carpet cleaning, telemarketing, subway restaurant, you know. I got a job as a disc jockey. I worked in bars, nightclubs. I was 17 years old, but it exposed me to a little different lifestyle maybe than I would have had at 17. And I started to be introduced into a night scene. I worked every night from 8 o'clock till 2 o'clock in the morning DJing. And from there I went into weddings and I did private events and just this, this grind of these types of relationships. And uh, there was someone in my life who, who convinced me that meaning was in the military. And I'll rewind just a little bit. I, I met a girl. I was 17 years old. She was 14. And she came up and put a napkin underneath the keyboard on my computer when I was DJing. And it was a, a birthday party for a girl whose parents happened to be Christian. And so there was no boys there except me. <laughs> and that, that lady is my wife. But uh, that was Sister Kaylee. She's not here tonight, but she's in Waco. But So God did use that for something. But uh, at the time, that relationship was, was no good. It was stops and starts, one heartbreak after another. We just broke each other's heart a whole lot. And uh, we thought we loved each other as much as a 14 and a 17-year-old could. But at 19 years old, I, I joined the Marine Corps. And uh, I, I went off to boot camp, and it has a way of changing you. Uh, halfway through boot camp, I, I, I started to feel maybe that I had made some bad choices. So I, I hunted down the local whatever. They've got everything from Buddhism to Pentecostalism there in, in the boot camp. Make sure you're spiritually covered. I went through the doors, but... I didn't, I didn't find home there. And so I got out of boot camp and I was deployed over to Iraq. And I left with the perspective that I was going to go over there and uh, I was an infantry marine and I was going to fight these horrible people who blew up the World Trade Centers and get vengeance for God and country and everything else. And I remember when I arrived there, these people began to bring plates of rice and chicken and, and feed me. they try to kill you later on, but at least in the moment they were, they were feeding me. And I, I found it pretty ironic that they would invite me into their home when their average American would not do that, you know. And I remember thinking, they're people just like me, you know. And that troubled me deeply, and I guess in a certain sense, it sowed a seed that helped me later learn what it meant to come to repentance because we try to tell ourselves that we're different, that um, I'm different than you and because you're a Muslim or a white person or a black person or an uh, Iraqi, uh, that you're different and therefore I have cause to, to hate you and criticize you and maybe kill you. And I realized that and then I I, my conscience was troubled, and so I tried to learn Arabic, and I, I, I kind of got good at it. And uh, 
I was commended for it, not for killing people, but for communicating, winning the hearts and minds of the people. But these were things that my father put in me. This was the love of God that he put there that I couldn't quash. And, and throughout my time in the military, before the military, during and after, people would always say to me the same thing, you're different. And for those of you who are raised in the church, you're different and you always will be because God, God marked you before you were born. Amen. And uh, some would say you're greatly talented and some thought you were just downright crazy, but you're different. And I think we all are. We're going to be different because we've been in the presence of God tonight. We can't get rid of that. You know, after I came back from Iraq, I was tormented in my soul. I was tormented. Uh, I couldn't leave that place, you know. And, you know, uh, I try not to be too grotesque, but war has a way of really, really changing you. And you, you see the toughest men, and when, when they see somebody's brain splattered on the side of the wall, they just shatter. But how are they going to deal with that, you know? And so they harden, you know, and they, they harden one another. They pick on each other. They make rotten jokes. And, and in the beginning, they weep and they cry and they try to find a place to hide. Everybody has that sorrow. But the hardening of the heart begins to grow, you know? And you learn to be calloused and, and without feeling. But you come back. And people say, I know what you've been through. And you say, no, you don't. You know? And in a certain sense, that's true. Because they're not where you are. You're in a reality devoid of feeling, devoid of peace, devoid of love. You're in a place where fear and death, is, it reigns. And so, after I got back from Iraq, I was tormented in my spirit. And... Uh, um, one night, a situation escalated until uh, the sheriff was outside and I was inside with a gun and the military was trying to talk me down. And I ended up, they put a needle in my arm and took me off to a psychiatric hospital and discharged me from the military. Honorably, but they discharged me from the military. And I battled with that. What are you going to tell people, you know? I'm a Marine, but I went crazy and so, yeah. I'm not a Marine anymore, you know. I tried different jobs. I tried truck driving. Um, I tried to go back to the jobs I worked before the military. I tried to go back to the friendships and relationships I had. There was nothing there. It was hollow. It was empty. How can you go back? And, and so I started to dig deeper into alcohol and drugs. And during the military, I started to, um, you know, smoke a little pot out there like everybody did just to calm your nerves and drink quite a bit but after I got back uh, it got worse you know and I I couldn't find comfort in anything and so I um, let me rewind a little bit and I, I, I try to tell a story here that would take me years to tell but I want to tell the salient parts that that maybe would help somebody I I came back and I married Kaylee and we got married on the military base, and it was a, a military wedding. And I remember calling my parents and inviting them and asking for their blessing. And my dad very kindly told me how much he loved me, but he, he was not going to give his blessing to that type of relationship because it wasn't founded in God and that he wished me the best, but, but no. And uh, uh, 
you know, you try to you try to pick up a judgment about that, but I couldn't, not with my dad. I never knew a man who was more consistent with himself. But Kaylee and I are married, and now we are going through this transition from military life and uh, to civilian life. And really, it went from the military to drugs. And the military gave me a pension because of what they'd done to me. And so I had free access to whatever I wanted. I didn't have to work a job. I wasn't compelled to be any man's slave. And I had a crutch from the devil. You know? And I remember I needed to find meaning. So I went off, I went off to the mountains of Colorado. And I, I found myself a place... Uh, first, I lived in the city. I was on a third, third story of a, a nice, the nicest apartment complex in Colorado Springs. And I said, this is insane. All of my neighbors are successful people, but I spend $1,200 a month for this little tiny box, and I can't do anything here, you know. And so I had a brilliant idea, you know. I'll, I'll move off into a single-wide mobile home on the plains of Colorado, Maybe I'll find some peace out there. So I got rid of my nice truck. I bought a $900 uh, K5 Blazer, and my wife and I moved in. The windows were all knocked out. We swept out the snow with a push broom and put blankets over the windows and had Christmas. And we thought, you know, we were going to have a start. But it wasn't long before I thought maybe a good economic choice would be to grow some marijuana because I could make a living, you know. So I was, uh, started growing marijuana. And uh, I uh, terrified, you know, that it wasn't legal then. And so the fear engine that was pushing me from the military is pushing me still. And I'm always looking out my windows, and I need a few more guns, and I need a few more friends. And it just got from bad to worse. And I, I'm out there on the eastern plains, and my neighbor got raided. And, uh, and he's getting raided, and I'm throwing my possessions out the back door in trash bags, and I've got to get to a more remote location. <laughs> and so I moved up into this little town at the top of the mountain in the middle of nowhere, and, and then I got into an argument with the police up there, and I've got to get out of this place. And so I, I moved to another place. I think we moved 13 times in six years, and that kind of can give you a sense of, of the engine that was driving us. And during this time, you know, each time I would accumulate a little bit more uh, weaponry, and each time I would dig a little bit deeper into the political and social and economic problems with America and how I was going to fix that. And I really was persuaded that I could fix it. And I, I remember digging through, and I, I went back to the, the 1913 and the implementation of uh, Social Security and income tax and all this stuff, and this is the problem. And then I dug back further, and I finally found myself at the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers, pre-Constitution, and I said, both of them are wrong. You know, history had proved them both wrong. And so I went from Republican to Libertarian to maybe some sort of Democrat to um, an anarchist. And I believed that there was no government that worked. And if there was a government that worked, it'd be a group of people that I could put my arms around. And so I, um, living in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, I threw in my lot with uh, the Hells Angels in Denver, Colorado. I, uh, I drove 300 miles in the winter road to meet them. and This was going to be the answer, you know. And I moved. I left my place in the mountains where I was able to at least, you know, I was 
spatially sober. And what I mean by that was I did not possess in my character or in my spirit any ability to resist sin. And yet I knew it would destroy me. And so I would come down the mountain once a month and I would get my fix, fix of sin, the entertainments of the world, drugs, and then usually by the end of the first week, I would be back up on my mountain and I would be sober. But when I came into contact with the, the motorcycle club, I, uh, I had to move closer. And so I moved into the city. And when I did, you know, the, the reality of who I was really started to come out. And I could not contain myself. And I began to uh, uh, meddle with methamphetamines and um, heroin, um, cocaine, crack cocaine, uh, the whole gamut. And I began to deal. And, you know, whatever you say about those, those organizations, they, they were trying to encourage me to slow down, you know, and get sober. And those, those people were a pretty rough crowd. And uh, um, I, I was in a pretty bad way. I was a violent man. I, I excelled in that lifestyle. I felt like I had a brotherhood. Um, I was started to worry about the club because I had people in the club who I, I respected. They came to me and they said, you know, you take it too serious. You can't take this so serious. You know? And I tell you, that came from my father, you know, because if I was going to do it, I was going to do it for real. And so as far as I was concerned, this had to be the answer for the world, you know. And during that time, I had a brother who was there with me. And he left and he came down to visit here. And, and through that, a course of events began to transpire. And I, I remember, you know, I'll, I'll paint a picture. I have guns behind every door in the house and I'm dealing drugs out of the house and and, and, and my, my poor wife, you know, she was an atheist, um, but she was terrified as I was. And I would have these spells where they're coming, you know, which would find me on the floor with a machine gun, you know, ready. There's no one there, you know. And fear is a real, real engine. And I was so afraid. I was afraid of the people who were going to find my guns. I was afraid of the people who were going to throw me in prison for my drugs and guns. And I was afraid of the people who were going to steal them. I was afraid of my enemy. And I, I was a sergeant, so everybody was my enemy, you know. And I remember another little tidbit of repentance. God sowed a seed. I said, every enemy I make, I can never get rid of. And every single time I'd make an enemy, I could never get rid of them. And so I could run away from them. I could fight them, but they were always there. And during this time, my wife began to ask me questions about God. And I'll tell you all these things, but I would have told you if you met me during any of these times in my life, I'm no Christian uh, because I'm not like Jesus, but God is real. I actually know of people who are Christians, but they're cut from a different cloth than me. They're actually good people, but I'm, I'm not that person. I'm an evil person, and I, I was. But I did not believe that... There was anything in my DNA that made me the same as the people of God. But my wife started to ask me about Jesus. And I told her, I always told her, God exists. He's real. He exists. His name is Jesus. But I'm not like him, and I can't serve him because I just can't. I, don't, I can't do it. I've tried. It doesn't work. You know? 
And uh, she kept asking questions. And she, she bought a Bible and she started reading it, you know, and I would see her over there in the corner with a, a shawl over her head, you know, and whimpering out prayers to God. And it hurt me. It really hurt me, you know, because I knew how to pray. I tell you, I knew how to pray. I knew how to touch God. I would hear my father groaning, and I, I said, oh, I do that, and I did, and I touched God. So I knew how to pray. I didn't pray, but I knew how to pray. And she, she kept asking me about Jesus, about Jesus. And I said, e, you got to call my mom. Yeah, you got to call my mom. I can't help you. And she did. And I, I, uh, I continued to watch this change, you know. And you, you would think that, it would turn my heart, but it didn't because I see her behavior. All of a sudden, I'm not fighting. We fought tooth and nail. Not physically, but we just, people ask, why do you stay with each other? And we said, well, because we have to have someone to argue with, you know. And we just, we just argued nonstop. We just beat each other up verbally nonstop. And we had plenty of dirt on one another, so it was no problem. We could always go back to a previous sin and just beat each other up, you know. But I watched my wife change, and I'm going to go back and forth here, but I'll try to connect it. And it was during this time I had ridden a motorcycle for years, but when I became a part of an, an association that that was their lifestyle, I needed to be the best at it. <laughs> I had to be. So I started riding like I lost my mind. <laughs> and I'm standing on my seat and, you know, riding at 100 miles an hour and all these stupid things that you see people do. But I was terrified. <laughs> I wouldn't have told you that, but I was terrified. So I remember I would wind down these canyons. There was this canyon called Devil's Canyon, and I would be flying down it, scraping the pegs on the bike, and I was sure I was going to die, and I knew I was going to go to hell. And I began to pray. And Nobody could hear me on that motorcycle, and I would cry out, you know, to God, and I began to pray, and I began to feel the presence of God, and so I was kind of glued to the seat of that motorcycle um, because I prayed, and I wrecked, I think, five times in one year. I broke my arm. I broke my hip. I was leaving a bar one night with my, my wife on the back of the motorcycle, and I don't know exactly what happened because I don't remember it, but I went headlong into a telephone pole. And uh, as a result, she got 13 inches of titanium in her pelvis, and she was a runner, you know. And you can imagine how that was. And uh, I got some metal parts too. And, and I was charged with uh, uh, vehicular assault because I was intoxicated. And I felt like this was the most unfair thing that had ever happened to me, you know. Here they go, you know, and I, at this point, I had initially been very much pro-law enforcement and pro-government, but um, I had turned hard against the government during my time after the military, not because of the military, but because I said the answer is not there, and so I had become pretty hard against them, and so now I felt like they had falsely accused me, but God was working something, and we were living, I'm rewinding now, so we're still in the cabin up in the mountains when this happens, and I have to carry my wife up this spiral staircase with her broken hip. 
And that has a way of kind of bringing the revelation of what you've done in your face. And I was coming down off the pain medications, and it was God's will, but I left my pain medications in town and went back to my cabin, and I was going through withdrawals. And uh, I really was going through withdrawals. And I began to, to really cry out to God, and, and Brother Safir showed up. And, you know, it's, it's like this, these moments in time. This is one thing I really want to share, you know. God is merciful. He's always merciful, but he visits us. And it's in the time of our visitation that we have the opportunity to respond to God. And here came Brother Safir, and he came into my house, and I can remember the day as if it were yesterday. And here was Jesus. I knew it was God, and I, I was just weak enough in my flesh the Spirit of God fell in that place. I believe I spoke in tongues, you know. It was, it was so powerful, you know. And Brother Safir took a picture and sent it to me, you know. And I remember, this was right before I joined the Hells Angels. This was the month before. And I'm sitting there, and I, 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 I told my wife even, I said, oh, there's something in me that just wants to get up and go with him, you know. But I had my life together. I was situationally sober, you know, and I didn't, I wasn't extremely addicted. I, I, I wasn't drowning under a burden of crime and, and debt and all these other things. So I said, there's just one thing I want to do. I, I, I want to go join the Hells Angels. You know? And I'll tell you, that cost me seven years, my freedom, my wife, my sanity, all of my friends. Uh, it cost me everything. You know? And God in his mercy brought me here today but I, I believe without any exception that there have been times of visitation in my life. And those times of visitation, when forfeited, cost me. There was a price to be paid. Thank you, Jesus. I remember that. So I hardened my heart and I did what I did. And now I'm in this place, you know, dealing. I would stuff the, the meth down inside, caught guns, and pretend to be a painter. And I would walk. That's how I. So this is where I am. And. I've got people coming and going in my home, and I'm fast-forwarding again, you know, and where, to where my wife is praying. And uh, I see a change in her. And I didn't like it, but she said, I've got to be baptized. I've got to be baptized. I said, well, if you're going to be baptized, you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. And you've got to do it at a Pentecostal church because they, 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 they baptize in Jesus' name. And so she went to get baptized. And I wasn't going to go with her. She said, would you please come? Would you please come? And I said, okay, I'll go. And so I went. And I remember I, I, I drove a long ways to get there. And I'm pulling out of a gas station. I stopped to get gas. And, and there is a car coming. And I mean, it is headed right for us. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's so close. And we're going to wreck. And I knew it. And then all of a sudden, it's not there, you know. And it was another visitation, you know. I knew it was God, and so the fear of God shook me. I never went into church, and, uh, but I went into church, and, and they said, well, let's baptize you too. And that seemed good enough, so they baptized me. and They gave me a certificate, and they put me with a, a prison guard as my mentor, and I said, I'm out of here, and I'm not coming back because this was contrary to my way of thinking, you know. But my wife continued to grow in, in her faith towards God, and I continued to wax worse. I was up in the mountains doing horrible things, um, and I came home one day, and she was gone. And 
I would be gone for three or four weeks at a time. And my club life took most, if not all, my time. And, but I came home and she was gone. And she, she didn't take her purse. She didn't take her clothes. She took no possessions. Uh, she took my, uh, my six-month-old baby girl and um, her wallet. And, you know, I'll rewind. I used to tell her we're for seven years we were married, never had children. And I, I would tell her, we're never going to have kids because if we have kids, I know what you'll do. You'll just take them and run. And she would say, it's your own self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. But then after that motorcycle wreck, she and I both looked at each other and we felt like we'd been given a lease on life. And we said we should have a child. And really the motivation for it wasn't godly. Um, we were afraid that I was going to go to prison. And she said, what am I going to be left with, you know. So we had my oldest daughter, Alyssa. And it changed my life. I, I came down off the drugs for about a week. And um, I remember all night I, holding her up in the, in the hospital. And the birth of that child, it, it shook me. It shook me like nothing else had. But it really was contrary to everything that I believed. It was so against me. You know, It was something I could not control. It was something that didn't come from fear. And I thought I loved my daughter, but I, I, I couldn't even be around the house, you know. And when I was, I brought with me violence and, and all these things. And so when my wife left, she, 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 she left for good reason. And uh, she came down to Homestead and in, in Waco. And I flew into a fit of rage. I first contemplated murder, you know. And then I contemplated suicide, you know, and I, I flew into a fit of rage, but I finally, uh, I just spiraled worse and worse into drug addiction until I was useful to no one. And I went to the motorcycle club, and I said, I, I, I quit. You know, I, I'm sorry. I can't do it. I've lost my mind. They said, well, you, you go get your wife back and get your life right and then come back. And, uh, I never came back. But I went home, and I would sit there in that house, and I would look at it, and I would see all my choices. And oh, I hated myself, you know. And I try to, I try to turn that hatred toward her, and I try to turn that hatred toward the world, and I try to turn that hatred toward anyone. But I would try to pack up to leave. But every time I pick up something, there's the memory with my wife, and I would fall back down on my face and I would cry. And I had lost most of my feeling until before that. But when, when, when my wife left, that took the last of it, you know, because I hardened myself, and so. After that, I, I didn't cry. I, I, one day I walked away. I gave away all my motorcycles, all my possessions. I, I shot out the front of my house accidentally because my hands were shaking. And I just walked out the door and I told my neighbor, he would always say, if I had things like you, I'd be okay. I said, well, all of it's yours. You know, all the motorcycles, all the guns, all of it, it's yours. You can have it. And He later told me, he said, I, I feel like I, I know what it feels like to be you and I hate it. You know, but uh, I left everything and I went running around the country, hitchhiking, backpacking, you know, just drifting from one place to another. And I would try to find sobriety. And I'd walk into a town and the first person I'd run into, hey, you want to get high? You know, and I couldn't outrun it, you know. And I, I finally wound up in Oklahoma City and I, there was a man who knew a man who had bought one of the guns that I had made, and so this was a man who would hire me. And 
so I went to work there. I went to work for a cabinet maker, and uh, uh, that's who he was, but he was on drugs, and he was in the same scene I was, and, and it just got worse. And one day I told him, I said, you know what? There's a lake out there, and I know there's a bomb shelter by it from the 1950s. Take me out there, and I'm going to get sober. So he did, and he dropped me off, and I turned off my phone, and I was out there with my dog for a week, and I got sober. And I called him, and I said, come get me. You know, I'm sober. He was drunk, and he, he said, well, I'm not coming to get you, and he accused me of a few different things, and I was so mad. And I, I couldn't do anything about it because I'm out here with no vehicle, no nothing, and so I, uh, I start walking. And I have my dog in a backpack. And I, I found this a, a rainstorm's coming. If you've ever been in an Oklahoma uh, rainstorm when a tornado's coming in, it's scary. And I see this abandoned house. There's plywood over the windows. And I said, this is, this is the place for me tonight. And I, I nudge the door. It pops right open. There's nobody in it. And I fall asleep on the floor. I wake up with pistols in my face and don't move and control the dog or we're going to shoot him and... And uh, I'm like, please don't shoot my dog. Please don't shoot my dog. I love that dog more than I love the Lord. Uh, he was my only uh, companion, you know. And uh, it was the only companion who could have tolerated me. The police asked me, do you have any drugs on you? And I said, well, I got some pot in my pocket. It was my sobriety plan. <laughs> and um, so they arrested me. And they charged me with burglary because I entered a building with an intent to get high. So now it was burglary. And it was also within so many feet of a park. And the next thing you know, I've got this, this long list of charges and I'm sitting in an Oklahoma jail. And I had a lot of time to think. And I remember calling my mom from that jail and I'm like, oh, mom, they took my dog. They took my dog. You know? and, I mean, that gives you an idea of where my priorities were. I'd lost my wife. I'd lost my child. And the thing I cared about was my dog. And I, at the end of the conversation, she told me, she said, uh, I said, would you please tell my wife I love her? And she said, you don't know the first thing about love, you know. And it sticks with me because it was the word of God, you know. And I, I knew that was true, you know. And I, I told the Lord, I was sitting down in that prison cell, and I said, okay, God, I would get together with the little group and say the prayer, you know, Lord, help me to accept the things I cannot change and to change the things I can and to know the difference. And, you know, and I started to sing, I'm on the battlefield. And I, man, I tell you, I started to feel pretty good. You know, I got in a fight and I won, so I felt pretty good about that. And I just, I was not where I needed to be. But I told the Lord, I said, if you will get me out of here, I will never smoke meth again. <laughs> and the Lord got me out of there. And within a week, I was, I was out of there. And I, I was fixing to go down for a criminal charge, and my brother came up there. He was in the courtroom, and the Lord moved on him, and he walked over to a man, and he said, can you help him? And they let me go. They let me go. And so the felony charges were dropped, and I'm free. And I knew it was God. And my repentance was real. And what I mean by real was it was this. I knew it was God. He'd done what he said. I asked him for something. I even really blackmailed him, you know. And, and yet he did it. He got me out of there. And I said, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to do it. And, and that was in July of 2013. And I came to Homestead Heritage. I didn't own a car. I didn't want a car because I knew if I had a car, I'd run away. So I had a bicycle. 
and I would ride to work, and I wanted to get baptized. I wanted to get my family right. I wanted my wife and kid back, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, you know. And I remember looking through some of the teachings on baptism, and I would hear people saying, you know, this is not a magic trick. You know, this is not going to be easy. This is going to be hard. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know, I know. What I need is just baptize me. Just, just, just baptize me. Just baptize me, and I'm going to do this, you know. And I remember reading through that literature, and I said, I remember reading the first sentence, and I'm like, really, do I have to understand all of this, you know? And I said, well, I'll just, I'll just get through it, and I'll catch up with it later, you know? And so I did. I pleaded. I begged. I, I, I asked for entrance. I meant it with all of my heart. I just didn't know how much it cost. And... So I was baptized on November the 13th, 2013. And I remember I listened back every year to the words that were spoken to me at that baptism. And in that baptism, there was a warning from God. If you will keep my word, if you will do what you commit, then I will guard you. And if you don't, it's going to be seven times worse. You know. And I was out of that water, and it felt great. I was clean. But I went to work, and the brother on the job site, you know, I was the type of guy who still thought it was okay. I wore black everywhere I go. I had tattoos, you know, still do. Big knife on my hip. And I wasn't really a good example of anything. But the Lord loved me, and so did the people of God. And he would say something to me like this. I'd just like to submit to you, or that maybe... You should do this a little different. And I, I had worked for horrible bosses. I'd worked for semi-mobsters and gangsters, and I would say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I will. And then I would walk away, and I'd say, who does that guy think he is? Does he know who I am? Does he know what I've done, what I've been through? I was a Marine. I was a health angel. I was a gangster. Do you know what I could do to you? And that's what I think. And then I started to look around and I started to fall into sin and I, I'd see this temptation over here and I'd smoke a little pot with this old friend and I'd have a beer with this old friend and, and all the while I start looking around at the people around me and I start saying, they must be doing the same thing I'm doing. Most of the time living for God, you know, but every once in a while not. And, and I started to fall into deeper and deeper sin meanwhile carrying around this engine again of paranoia and fear that started to kick up again. And it turned off, but now it's running. And I better get me some guns. I better do something, you know. And before you know it, I'm in crime, sin up to my neck, unfaithful, unclean, just as evil as I was. It's been less than two months, you know. And so... I said, I got to get out of here. And I, I literally was having visions of dead bodies and everything, just like I was before I came to God, because I was back in the same place. And so I fled, and I convinced my poor wife, come with me. It's going to be different. And I was sure it was, so I went and got a nice house out in the country, but within a week, I was right back to doing the same thing. And she looked at me, and she said, you're not for real. You are not going to live for God. I'm going home. You know, and, uh, and she came back to Waco, and I thank God for it. I thank God for it. Now it's full of venom and murder in my heart, you know, because I was a betrayer, I was a backslider, and I really had someone who, who stood in 
in the face of all that and was faithful to God. And before she left, she moved out into an apartment and she really considered it. She prayed and she, when I drug her out, I'm like, you don't have to dress like that. You don't have to act like that. You can still live for God. And she listened to me for a second. But as soon as she got out of my presence, even before she was in the presence of the church, I could see Jesus again, you know, and it was me and I, I knew that. And uh, I would tell myself, if she just held on, I just had a few deals I had to do and we were going we were gonna to make it big. And, you know, I didn't, they didn't go through, of course, because she left and I lost my mind over it, you know. And um, all I had to do, mind you, I'm carrying the burden of my vehicular assault this whole time from the DUI. But they told me no felony, just do 150 hours community service. But... You can't do community service when you're working for the devil because uh, it's not on your list. And when you try, you just run into more people just like you and get sidetracked. So I think I got like five out of 150 hours done over a five-year period, which they gave me to do it. And, uh, and so now I remember um, I got arrested. I was wanted in Oklahoma because I hadn't paid the fines there. And, uh, and they told me, you're, you're now a felon because you were offered a deferred sentence, and, but still, they don't really want to throw you in prison for something like that because they just want your money. So they offered me another probationary thing, and I'm like, no way, I'm not going to do it. So I just left. I just ran off, and I, I went from coast to coast, to Richmond, Virginia, Nashville, North Carolina, Los Angeles, San Diego, Seattle, just, just drifting, and I, I was wanted now. And so I... Uh, I would ride the rails, and I'd get on the train, and I remember the train was my spatial Christianity now, and uh, because on the train I was sober, and I felt like I was free because the cops couldn't grab me off the train, <laughs> and so I would ride the rails from Oklahoma to California, and I remember I'd get off, and I'm like, where am I? And before I knew what city I was in, the drugs would find me, the culture, the life, you know, and I remember crying out to God. I said, it's not a substance, it's a serpent, you know, and uh, it was, you know, but during that time, I just got worse and worse, and I was picked up in California and thrown in a psychiatric hospital, and they court-ordered me onto medications, and I, I was so far gone, I couldn't carry on a conversation with anybody, and they were hacking my brain, I was that guy, you know, I was gone, and loneliness has a, has a way of really tormenting you. And when you're wanted, you can't hang out around people because sooner or later, attention's going to come, you know. And I got out of that psychiatric hospital, and I fled back uh, to Texas. I just want to give a little bit of a picture of where I was in a mental state. You know, if I landed in Nashville, I thought I was where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that make sense? That's where my mind was. That's the way I thought. And the same thing with Asheville. That meant that I was somewhere in Isaiah 63 where he's going to exchange these things. And I want to read a few scriptures because throughout this time, before I came to repentance, um, which I haven't got to yet, but before I ever came to God on any level, my parents would read this scripture to me. And the words of it were permanently and are permanently ingrained in my heart. And so if I can't find it, I'll just speak it. But he says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, 
the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And it was, I will restore to you the years. And every time I would call my parents, I would hear the same thing. If you would come to repentance, if you would love God, if you would do what's right, God would restore to you the years. And I, I want to paint a picture because to me, it's like you have a garment, and we'll call it the years, and it's totally wasted. My marriage was a failure. Military was a failure. The gangs were a failure. The clubs were a failure. The drug dealing was a failure. Everything was a failure. So everything had been eaten. There was nothing to restore. You know, It was gone. And if you look back, if I look back at my life and I was trying to approach a group of people, what is my attributes? What am I going to say is my resume for a relationship? You know? And so increasingly the erosion of my condition really started to eat at me. And I remember telling the Lord, I said, God, I don't know what to do because I am compelled to either lie or be alone. Because if I told the cops the whole truth, they'd throw me in jail. If I told anybody, any woman, anyone, the whole truth, I'm incompatible for any relationship with anyone. There's no one, not a single soul who would ever be with me, you know. So I'm either going to manipulate and lie or I'm going to be alone. And I was alone. I made a commitment to God. I, sometime during this, I said, I will never lie. You know, there's a song that says, these rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through show only the beauty and they hide all the truth, you know. And I remember I heard that song in my head and I said, every lie I've ever told has been an optic on my eyes. It's never fooled anyone but me and my perspective is what's the deception. And so everybody looks at me and sees me for what I am. And I look at them and think they believe my lie, but I'm the only one who believed it. And then I would be listening to the music, and I'm like, I used to think, that's me. That's about my life. But then I listened to it, and I said, that's not about me. That played me. I listened to that, and that became my life. You know, the story about the gangster who lost his wife and family. You know what I mean? Who went crazy. That was me. I would listen to it, and I'm like, I listened to that song before I was here. That song prophesied into existence my condition, you know. And so I cut off all songs, you know. And I, I remember I would have friends in the drug community and then they traded out dope and beer and, and pot and all these other things for cell phones, for Facebook, you know. And they were still high, but they communicated through this thing. And so I lost all those relationships to that. And so I smashed it. I'm like, I won't have it. So I had no phone, no friends, no family, no sanity, you know. And I would talk to myself, and I, I had a chorus of, of demons in my head. And I remember trying to coordinate the voices in my head. I, I, I walked around with a staff, and I was the type of guy, you know. Um, I hope you haven't seen it, but there's a, there's a movie out there called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And this guy would always say, we're in back country, because he was hallucinating, and his world was full of demons. And that's where I lived, you know, and if you tell people that, you're not compatible. Because what are they going to do? They're going to take you to the psychiatric hospital. So you lie or you run. You lie or you run. And so I just kept running and running and running. And I, I couldn't tell you all the places I was or the years uh, that it took or I, even the seasons. Everything lost meaning. And the only thing that was was torment. 
And I remember somewhere in between, I walked over the Cumberland Gap, and I was somewhere in between North Carolina and Nashville, Tennessee. And I heard the voice of Brother Barry Hirsch. And he's an a, a elderly saint in our church. And if he was sitting back there, you'd hear him sometime, oh, yeah, you know. And I heard this voice. And I said, oh, yeah. And there was quiet in my head. You know. And so I said, God, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And I started to pray. And I prayed day and night. And I just, I don't know if God would hear me because I wasn't sure if I was alive or dead. I was a very tormented place. But I knew that hallelujah brought me peace. And so I hallelujahed myself. I said, I must have said a million hallelujahs. That must be something, worth something to God. I'd get into these arguments and I would border back and forth between the angelic and the demonic and, you know, visions and hallucinations of hell and then the miraculous intervention of God. And it was during this time where I said, I've got to go back to the beginning. So I sat down and I said, I'm going I'm to keep the Sabbath. I'm a homeless bum, no shoes, no clothes. And I, I went and I, I searched through the shelf of a gas station and I found a denty moor beef stew and it said kosher you know so I sat down and I beneath a tree and I prayed and I said okay I'm going to keep the Sabbath and I didn't do anything that day but pray and I don't know that I ever did that again but it was a step and I tried it but it didn't work constitutionally and here's the reason why because I would pray and I would say God you know I cry out to him in worship and his presence would draw near. And then as soon as he came, I would make demands. And I'd say, Lord, I can't be alone. I, I need a wife. I need friends. Uh, Lord, you you've got to somehow, you know, do this and do that. And what about my criminal record? You said you came to break the prison bars and set the captive free. And look at me, I'm wanted. And and he God would come to me and he'd tell me, You're you're gonna go to prison, you know. And I would say, That cannot be God. Because if that were God, he came to break the prison bars. It was, it was Jesus. And he kept telling me, you're going to go to prison. And I began to cry out to God. And I cried out to him day and night, I would say, for several years. And most of the time, the sky was like brass. And the reason being is, uh, I'm surprised he listens to me at all. Because I had so many demands. I did not see God as God. Have mercy on me, Lord. I remember the perspective shift. I was in an apartment in a city, and I had a huge party at my house, and the party ended, and I realized that not one person had said one word to me. And they all got high. They talked. They chatted. They, they used my drugs. They ate my food. They slept in my bed, but nobody even said a word. And I heard news through the grapevine that my father had been diagnosed with cancer. And I spread it all over Facebook. And they were upset that I would do such a thing. <laughs> and I understand. But I didn't then. And I'm like, why? I wanted people to pray. And I can't pray, you know. Um, because all I did was hallelujah, you know. But that night I went and I bought a jar of honey. 
And I opened up the window. I know this may sound insane to you all, but it's something that really was real. And I, I opened up the window, and I put the jar of honey open on the windowsill, and I flipped open the wooden box that I had of my dad's literature. And I, I reached in there, and I pulled out a little pamphlet called The Community of the God Who's Different. And I opened it up, and I began to read about Abraham. And my dad is, is talking about Ur, and he's talking about the context of Ur and how this context was not a spiritual context. It was the most decrepit context. And if you knew the things I've done, you'd understand why I didn't believe I was compatible with the people of God. But it hit me all of a sudden. I said, he was just like me. And he was, he was married to his half-sister. He lived in this place. Look at Lot. Look where Lot lived. You know, look what they tried to do to the angels. I was reading it this morning, and, and I said, okay, he lived in the world I live in. He was just like me, you know. And I think that was the, the first shattering of the excuse that I had for backsliding because I tried to live for God, but it didn't work. Because I was different. That was the excuse. And I was not different. And with that jar of honey up on the, ground, up on the windowsill, I fell with my face to the ground. And mind you, I was full of drugs and everything else. But God began to speak to me. And, 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 and he spoke to me like, like Mount Sinai. He did not speak to me like he speaks in this context, you know. And the sky was black and there was lightning and thunder. And I, I was so terrified. Words could not express. And he spoke words into my heart that I could never repeat. And, but they were like, you know, it was like a lightning bolt. just. And I, I for once felt like I couldn't argue with God. But I was terrified. And so I came through from that and I started to write and write and write and write and write and write. And I said, what if it's evil? So I ate it. You know? I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to throw it away. These things all did something to me, you know. And I remember I was up in, uh, I'm going to add just a few things here, but I was up in Seattle, and uh, I wrestled with the Lord. I, I, I'd had an experience in, uh, in Colorado where I pulled a gun on a friend of mine right there at the end before I walked away, and I was going to kill him. And uh, I had a rule, never pull a gun on your friend. You settle it with fists, and... So when I did that, I felt like Cain. And I, he said, are you going to kill me? I said, just get out of the house. Just go. Get out of here. And he walked outside, but he started bellowing, come out and fight me like a man. And, and, and so I did. I put down the gun, and I, I went to walk out there to fight him, and I was stepping down off the back steps of my house. And he was a very big man. And uh, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, you will not resist him. And that was it. It was not, don't, or you shouldn't. He said, you will not. And I really was smitten over what I'd done. And uh, the man punched me in the face, and I didn't feel any pain. And he began to, to pummel me, but I didn't feel anything. And I, I told him, I said, I want you to know how, how I apologize. And I wasn't allowed to say sorry. <laughs> but it was part of our code, you know. But I apologize for what I've done. 
and, and I want you to know that I forgive you. And when I said that, something picked him up, and he was a 330-pound, 6'5", 6' man, and it threw him back 12, 15 feet, and tears streaming down his face, his hands up. He's like, oh! And I said, never again will I ever use violence on another man. That was the day before I gave away all my guns and motorcycles, you know. And from then on, I was constitutionally conviction. I will never use violence on another soul, you know. And I knew I touched something more powerful than fear. And I, I want to touch on that because if you're bound by fear, it's a terrible thing. And each new fear is another chain, you know. And I, to me, that was the greatest liberation that I'd experienced thus far because I was free from the fear of death. And it was tested. I was mugged and ro robbed in, in Waco, in Houston, in Denver. I remember I insulted somebody's dog, and he beat me up, and he pounded my head into the curb, and, and I was delirious, and I walked back by him. So he did it again, and I, I didn't resist him. And I, 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 it was during that time that every one of my possessions which were laying on the ground were taken. So each thing, the Lord was reducing me. But... I think that's salient because without that conviction, I never would have made it. So I'm in Seattle, and I'm wrestling with, with God over mosquito bites because I didn't want to kill a mosquito because what if that also triggered something bad like killing people? And so I, I, I was very, very superstitious and insane. But um, I was covered with mosquito bites, and I was sitting out there. And I, I could hear these evil spirits in, in, in Seattle. So I, f I fled to Lewiston, Clarkston. And it was my intention maybe to get close to the community up there. Um, but I couldn't remember what city they were in. And uh, the Lord knew. And I think it was an angel, but I don't know. But I was walking over a mountain pass coming down from Coeur d'Alene. And a man picked me up and I said, uh, I think I want to stop in Moscow. And he said, the place for you to go is Lewiston, you know. And he took me all the way down the mountain and bought me a room and gave me $100. And, um, but here I was high in Lewiston, Clarkston, and, and picked up by the police and extradited. And I was sent back to Colorado, and I thought, well, this is my time. But I was sitting there in prison, and I started reading Psalms 19. And I would read the whole thing. There has to be something in the fact that it's the alphabet, so I would read it every day. And I told the Lord, I'll read this every day. The Lord released me from this, thankfully, because it was not... Not out of love, but I'll read this every day if you'll get me out of here. <laughs> and he did. And a man in the cell with me got somebody to bail me out, and I ran again. And so that was my last hurrah. And I want to tell how every time I was in jail, which was a lot, and I would come to repentance, you know. And I remember sitting in a cell with a man named Adam, Adam Prolsch. And they called him one eye because he only had one eye. And... and uh, we would sit there and we would read the book of John and oh, the Holy Ghost was there. The presence of God was there. And I'm like, this is incredible. You know, and he's like, are you going to live for God when you get out of here? And, and I'd say, yeah. And he'd say, be honest with me, man. And I said, no, I've got some dope hidden under a rock outside of town. Because I couldn't. I didn't have the power. I didn't have the context, you know. And so I wanted to love God. But it wasn't there. It wasn't within me. There was not the power to do it. So on one of these journeys of mine, I, I got on a train in California, and I'm going to come to Texas. And I, 
I had spent, I stopped off in Albuquerque, I jumped off and I spent the night in the middle of winter between two buildings and I nearly froze to death. And the Lord came to me again and I, I remember walking with someone, I don't know what to tell you, but I think it was an angel. And he was walking with me and I was confessing everything I'd ever done, which was a lot. And I was walking like this because I was afraid not to bend my knee to God. And uh, he walked with me a long ways and he put a coat on my back and that was after I spent the night in between these two buildings nearly froze. And so I said, I, I'm going to come to Texas. But I jumped on a train and I, I got to Amarillo and then I, I took a bus to Houston. And I wound up in Houston and I had a change of heart. And I, I decided I'm not going to come to Texas. Texas is synonymous with Homestead Heritage to me and the body of Christ. But I'm not going to come to Texas after all. I'm going to do one more foray. I'm going to head up to Eugene, Oregon. And that night, I still don't remember what happened, but I had a ticket, an Amtrak ticket to Eugene, Oregon, where some old drug friends of mine were, and uh, a, a pile of cash. And I was robbed, and, or I think so, but I woke up with a Bible, a $20 bill, and no ticket. And I was furious. And I threw the Bible on the ground. I'm done. I was so mad. I was so, so mad. And I jumped on a train, and I, I started riding. I didn't know where I was going. And I tried to walk out of town, and the cops picked me up, took me back, said, you can't walk on the interstate. And so I got on a train, and I'm headed out of town, and I never jumped off a train. Didn't want to tempt God, you know. And so, but this time I'm coming into a town, and I had this terror, and I jumped off the train, you know. And I remember walking into town, my arm was really hurting from hitting the ground. And uh, it was Temple, Texas. And I walked in and I said, is there a pay phone around here? I, I, I want to call somebody. And the lady said, just use my phone. And I called one of my brothers who was not at Homestead, was driving through Temple, didn't live there. And he picked me up and he said, there's a room in the house that I just rented that you could rent. And he was not living for God the way he should. And so I moved in and I knew when I fell off that train and I called him. I knew with conviction that that meant I was going to prison. Because if you stop running, you're going to get caught, you know. And, um, but that was worse than anything that ever happened to me. I was, sitting in that, uh, I was sitting in that attic of that house, and things just went from bad to worse. And I'm not leaving now. I'm st I'm, I was in Waco, not connected to the community anyway. any way. I don't think they knew I was there. But the devil... I was painting, putting the paintings on the wall, and the devil would make himself manifest through my paintings. And so having these visions of hell, and I wasting away. I was down to about 110 pounds from, from crack cocaine and methamphetamines. And I remember there was an area of the wall where I could see my father, and he would speak to me. And if I, I fixed my eyes on him, I didn't see the rest of the room, but if I averted my eyes for one second, then I was back where I was. And... Um, finally, somebody out of pity, really call, out for me, called the cops, and I think it took six officers to restrain me. I didn't have any clothes on. I didn't have any sanity. I was really gone. And uh, they wrapped me up in a tarp, um, and they, they, they took me to jail, and they, um, they put me in McClendon County, and uh, I was not going to eat. I was not going to drink. I was going to die. I was very, very, very stubborn. 
And um, for five days, I believe, maybe a little more or less, I don't really know, but I laid in a cell, just the padded kamomo that you get when you're insane. No toilet, no water, and I wouldn't eat. So they'd come in and they'd pry open my jaws and they would force sugar down my throat and shoot me up with insulin to keep me alive, you know. And uh, I remember I looked up and there was a bologna sandwich and an orange on the windowsill and I thought that to eat that was to die. I didn't realize how dead I was. And I finally crawled over and I ate that orange, you know. And uh, it was the beginning of humility. And it really was because I was so confident in my own perspective. And I was extradited back to Colorado and thrown in prison. And uh, it was during that time before my extradition, a man came to me in prison and he said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And I said, get away from me. I've, I've had all I ever want of religion. And I turned away and I felt like I denied the Lord, you know. My whole life had been in denial of the Lord, but I felt like I denied the Lord and I was smitten. And I'm like, oh, God, it hurt me, you know. And so I'm in prison. I'm up in Colorado and uh, it's five years ago, about this time, it was January 17th. And um, that's when time came back for me. Um, but... I want to say something about uh, that orange because I feel like it's a confidence in our own perspective. To me, that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sitting on that windowsill. And my confidence in my perspective of what that tree was would have killed me. And so it really broke the back of the devil in my life. And uh, so I'm in prison and I've got my face against a concrete wall and I hated my life. I'm going to be in prison and when I get out of prison, what am I going to do, you know? And there was a friend I knew who was with one of these church groups. You can call them churches, but they don't have any power. And I, I tried during that time when I was in Waco. I would go to this group and that group and this church and that church. And I always went, and I was always the object of their attention because I was just the type of guy who really needed something. And I thought they were righteous. And from my position and perspective, they were, but there was no power to overcome my condition, you know. And, and so... I thought, well, maybe I could go back to this Mercy House program at this place. And then I remember I sat there. I said, who am I kidding? I'm going back to prison. As soon as I get out of here, I'm coming back. And so I lay with my face against the wall, and I begged God every night, every day, please kill me, please kill me, please kill me. You know? And I, 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 I hope, I told my brother today, the closest thing for me to a total repentance was suicide. Because as long as there was hope in me, that I could get up and do this again, then I would keep doing it. And I had a very resilient flesh, you know. And so with my head against the wall, I couldn't take my life because I didn't give it. Everything else I'd given me came from me, you know. And the Lord spoke to me. And he said to me, he said, don't you want to tell your dad that he was right and you were wrong? And that's all God spoke to me. And I did. I, I, I did. I didn't want to as some sort of I'm coming to repentance. I wanted to as a last will and testament. God, you're right. I'm wrong. The story's over. And that's really how I felt. And so I, re I remember I went down to the, the guard and I said, can I get a legal pad? And he gave me one. And I, I sat down and I wrote and I said, what do I start? So I started at the beginning. 
and I started to try to write my parents. And I read it, and it was gibberish. I, I, I couldn't really carry on a conversation with anyone. And I, I watered up, and I threw it in the trash, and God spoke to me again. And he said, if you do that, you're not going to get anywhere. So I pulled it out, and I scrubbed it off, and I made a commitment to God. I said, I won't read one letter. And I wrote, and I mailed it. I wrote, and I mailed it. And I began to feel both sides of five pages, which was the maximum I could fit in a letter, and send it to my parents. And I began to receive letters back from them. And I, uh, I hope that people realize to me this was not repentance yet. I didn't know. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it looks like. It's just surrender. And I remember my dad said to me, he said, uh, we're so happy to see what God is doing and has done in your life. And I said, how can that be? What are they talking about? You know, nothing's happened. I'm rotting in a box and foreseeable future is as bad as the past. And the Lord spoke to me again and he said, do you think it's possible that others might see something about your life that you don't see? You know, and that's the revelation of prophecy because that's the word of God that speaks into life, that which is not as if it were. And I, I said, I guess so, Lord, you know, I don't know, you know. But from that, I guess so, everything that my dad spoke started to come to pass. And I remember Ossie sent me a scripture, and I, I can recite it. It was James 4 and 8, and he said, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. And I thought initially, what a scripture to send to a man in prison, you know. But I, I did. I started to lament and mourn and weep. And I started to pray. And um, the Lord spoke to me again. And he asked me a question. And I think this is the revelation, my first revelation of the real identity of God. He said, do you think that if you could go back and right all your wrongs and reverse every mistake you ever made, fix all your relationships, take yourself out of prison, erase your record, do you think it's possible that if you had given the reins of your life to another man, he would have done better? And he put it in the words of a man, because I believed in the abstract, almighty, mysterious God out there, but I didn't know how to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, I said, well, if I righted all my wrongs and fixed all my problems, then wouldn't everything be right? You know, but everything's been wrong so far, so I guess so. And you can still hear a whole lot of arrogance in that response. And so I began to know God as a father through my dad. And uh, the word of God began to come into that prison cell. And I felt like I was sent the book dying to death. And I started to pray and seek God every day. All I did was just read that book and pray. For a month I did. And my, my cellmate, he was a white supremacist nut job. And he, he told me, he said, you know, all you do is cry like a baby and you use up all our toilet paper, you know. And uh, next thing you know, you're going to tell me that you, that you have to love the cops too. And a few days later, I'm like, it's true. You know, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And so it was a big step for me to really forgive from my heart and pray, God, could I be a witness to a prison guard? You know, obviously I'm there as an evildoer, but could I be a witness, you know? And believe it or not, but pretty soon the, the, the cops, um, they're prison guards, we call them the cops there, and they would say to me, what are you so happy about, you know? And, and I would say, Jesus, you know? And, and something happened in my life so incredible through that time. And I wasn't out of prison. 
but I had the hands of God reaching in through the literature, through my parents, really, and through the prayers of God's people to, 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 to hold me there. And I was pretty self-serving at first. I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to live for you if you just get me out of here. I can't go back to Waco because I'm divorced, I'm insane, I've ruined my relationship with my wife, but I'm going to live for you, you know. And then one day I prayed a prayer. I said, God, would you please send me somebody to live for you here with, you know. And immediately a knock, like five minutes, a knock came in the door and said, would you like to join us for prayer tonight? Another prisoner, you know. God heard me, and then, and then a, a man walked up to me, and he said, I see you reading your Bible. And everybody told me, stay away from that man. You know, stay away from that man. He hangs out with the wrong people, the wrong colors of skin, and the wrong categories of crime, and just stay away from that man. And uh, I went and sat down with him. And he said to me, he said, there's a man praying in cell 369. Let's go, you know. And he had the Holy Ghost. Unfortunately, he went back, but he was right. There was a man praying in cell 369. And so we walked over there, and I'm like, oh, there's something to do here, you know. And so... I, I, I want to share a few of the scriptures because it was meaningful. And I began to read, I'll just, out of Ezekiel. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn. You know, why should you die, O house of Israel? Turn, you know. And, 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 and even in the Old Testament, this God is not, he doesn't want you to die here, you know. And I began to preach repentance. And I, I was standing in the prison corridors with scriptures and I'd hand out tracts and the guards left me alone you know they, they he's nuts but and I went to every single church service with everybody you know and I I fasted and kept the Sabbath with the messianic mess I'm not calling them real messianic Jews but there was a mess there and I, I just something happened to me and um, my dad and my mom I I knew to have relationship with God's people was to live for God so I was afraid to pick up that phone. And I would write my parents and I would thank them for their letters. I'm rewinding a little bit because I, I jumped ahead. But um, I remember I wrote them and asked them if it would be okay to call. <laughs> and that I was afraid, you know. And then I wrote a think again and asked if it would be okay to call on Thursday, you know. And it takes like three weeks time for that transaction to, to, to come in and out. And that was because of my, my fear um, of being committed, you know. But I read that book, the book um, called Love That Works, and it talked about Ruth. That was the first thing I read. And when I got to the end and my letter, I just wrote out to the people of God, you know, do not entreat me to leave you, nor turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you die there, I'll be buried. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And I plagiarized everything from there because there was no other way to say it. And uh, I was committed. And uh, I didn't know how. I was divorced. I had a string of sins and crime. I was in another state. I couldn't be there. But God was working in prison. I was the happiest I had ever been in my life. You know, I couldn't stop smiling. I walked the prison yards and people would do obscene gestures at me and mock me. And I couldn't stop smiling. You know, I, I really was the happiest man I'd ever been in my life. And, and so... I went on a seven-day fast with a friend of mine, and I. each night we'd walk around the prison, and we're like, at seven days, the walls of Jericho are going to fall, you know? And they did. And, uh, but on the seventh day, they granted me parole to the state of Texas, which was a miracle. And I put that in, and it doesn't happen. You're not 
I'm, I'm in a Colorado prison. So they, they sent me to Texas. And Texas was not somewhere that I treasured coming to. And it wasn't because I didn't feel like God was there. I felt like it was, I called it Bethlehem, the house of bread. Because it gave me all the spiritual sustenance that I had. But the problem with it was, I have hurt so many people. I had hurt so many people in a way that, you know, I would never forgive. And I remember that. I said, God, how can I live in the face of these people? And the Lord began to show me that if I hated me more than they could ever hate me, then I wouldn't take me with me, if that makes any sense. And so it was October, um, it was October the 11th of 2017, and I, uh, I was released from prison. And people would say, well, that's nice, and that's where the testimony ends, but it's really just the beginning. It was just the beginning. Brother, Brother Ossie picked me up, and, and uh, we were driving in that car, and he put on that song, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. And, and uh, I came back into this context, and my first fears... We're facing people, you know. And I think that's all of our first fears. My repentance is real, God. My repentance is real, God. I'll do whatever you ask. I'll do whatever you ask. Okay, we'll go ask for forgiveness. Lay down your life and prove to people, you know. People ask me questions. I remember one brother said to me, he said, I said, as long as I live, you will never be here. But at the request of people who I dearly love and trust, I'm going to give you a chance, you know. And so I had something to prove to God and I had something to prove to his people. And I didn't want to let the Lord down. So step by step, God began to change me. And I say that was the beginning. I thought I was a Christian, but I didn't know yet humility. But God taught me humility, you know. And uh, he taught me to love. He taught me to love through my dad. And there are a few things that I put here. I have a long list. But daddy taught me how to love. And I spent four years, almost four years, with Dad. And I committed to God that I would pray for him every time I saw him unless the Lord told me not to. And so I would go to my dad and I would pray for him. And the next time I saw him, I would say, God, I already prayed for him. And what am I going to do now? You know? But I would go and I would feel the love of my father drawing me. And God taught me how to love because I didn't do it because I wanted a trick. I wasn't doing it because if you just heal him, then, they, then it would be validated. But I, he taught me to love. He taught me to love through daddy dying, you know. And if I could say anything about my life in God, it's the relationship of a father and his children. And every relationship from my little brother who's a father in the Lord to me to Brother Safrir and everyone else. It's a relationship of a father to his children. And so the Lord walked me through. I never went back to addiction. I never picked up a cigarette. Never looked at salacious material. Never went back to the dope. And you know, you say these things and people are like, yeah, great, but... I have gone back to the swill so many times. It wasn't for lack of wanting that I couldn't be free. It was for lack of the power to change. And 
I think of one, one parable as somebody else's testimony, but they told about a forest of trees and a logging company came in and said, you know, if you would let us cut down all the less than choice trees, you can keep all the choice trees and your property will be beautiful and we'll give you a profit for your lumber. And they did. And the next year, all the choice trees fell over because they were not rooted and grounded in their relationships. And my walk with God in the context of the people of God, it's not what I thought. It's not standing on a street corner, you know, but it's being rooted and woven together into the context of a culture of relationships that could take somebody who could not walk the path, the highway of holiness, a fool, and, and make him able to walk. And so to God and to his people, I, I owe an eternal debt of gratitude. And um, I hope and pray that, that some of it rang true with, with, with some of you because the glory is to him. And I, it's not my testimony, it's, it's his testimony. And I do feel like Lazarus, and I'm thankful for that. But it's, it, the glory goes to Jesus. And I will tell you one thing, there's no hopeless case. And, and there is no one, they played that at my baptism, too far gone. Amen. And, 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 and Jesus saved me. And I would testify of his goodness. Thank you, Jesus. It wasn't that he could never feel the presence of God. God's presence touched you even in the darkest situations. That wasn't the problem. And in a sense, it wasn't the solution. It's that he could never surrender his will to God. And when he decided to eat that orange, he was saying that was the first crack in the stubbornness of his own perspective and his own will. And then coming to the conviction of the futility of man's efforts of what he could do apart from God. That was the next big thing. Could you, could someone else do better with your life than you did? Yes. And then not being willing to make a distinction between submitting to Christ and submitting to the one Christ with sin. That was the next one. And those were the steps of repentance. You know, the, the, the carnal man reigns through the carnal will, through the will of the flesh. That's what it all boils down to. And when Jesus suffered at Calvary, he first wrestled in Gethsemane. And the crux of his wrestling was his will. He didn't have a carnal will, but he had the will of a, of a, of a living man who wanted to survive. <laughs> and the crux of his surrender was not my will, but your will be done. That's the crux of repentance. It's not just God Save me from my filthiness. It's God save me from my willfulness. That's why so many Christians who live clean lives, they are not repented. Jesus is not the sovereign Lord of their existence. But when he says to him, don't you want to tell your daddy was right? Sovereignty is imposing itself, and he is saying, okay, 
I'll do it your way, God. Then he writes it out and he's disgusted. He wads it up into the trash, throws it into the garbage and sovereignty says, don't do that, pull it out. It's exactly like Brother Zach's repentance. He's begging God for this miracle and God says, go pray for the man. And he shuns it, he spurns it, he gets past it and the Lord questions, do you want us to keep being the Lord of your life? The Lord tells him, you decide when to get up, when to lay down, what to eat, what to wear, where to go. You decide. And that power to choose our own course, it's the gift that God gave us. But when we usurp it apart from a relationship of dependence, we set ourselves in God's place. And so repentance is saying, no, Lord, your way, your will. And I'll just say, when Simeon was coming to repentance, I remember we had a family powwow. Dad, got, dad and mom got everybody in the living room, and they asked, they wanted to do everything openly, and they asked, dad asked mom to read the letters. And I hate to tell you, but a lot of your siblings were pretty skeptical. And we loved mom and dad, and we didn't want them to be hurt again. <laughs> and we all came with our arms crossed. But what we ended up saying is we need to give it a chance. We need to give it a chance and just see. And when I wrote you that letter, I said to myself, if he's full of baloney, I'm going to see that old pride come out in response to this letter. I'm going to send him a truth that if he's still got that smug ego, it's going to come out. And it didn't. Instead, he, I got this response. And I can say in five years, I remember praying the night before I picked you up. We got a hotel room in, in, in Canyon City and I was in the prison parking lot when only the yellow lights of the prison security were on. The sun was still below the horizon. And, uh, and I said, God, I'm going to know when I look in his eyes. I'm going to know if there's the torment of, of Simeon still being his own God or if there's the joy and the release and the peace of someone surrendered to the only Lord and Sovereign. I'm going to know it in the first instant. He got in the car. They had given me this ridiculous sports car, and I asked for a sedan, and they gave me this ridiculous sports car. It's embarrassing. But there I am, <laughs> humility coming to pick him up, and I'm in this sports car. And, uh, but he gets in, and the instant I looked at him, I knew it. I knew it was real. And in five years of trying to help you, and I've never, you've never bristled one time. There's not been a moment of pride there's not been a moment of, <gasps> who are you to tell me that? You know, I am his younger brother, but I've, I've encountered nothing but the soft clay of a broken spirit and a contrite heart that God will never despise. And I love you. And it's not that God restored. He did that, but he created. So I've got a brother and a friend that I never had. I, I never met this guy. I never met the child of God. I just knew the wild donkey of a man. And now we know somebody else. And I love you so much. 
And you're as much of a new creation as if God had killed you that day like you prayed. Because he, he really did. I have died to the world and the world is dead to me. You begged him to take your life and he said, you really mean that? Okay, let me be Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We were coming up over the, the horizon Coming out of Pueblo, Colorado, the road just rises up and down and up and down. You know how it is on 25 heading south. And we were coming up over those swells, and I punched on that song. And, man, we were feeling the Holy Ghost and crying and worshiping, and we're still doing the same thing five years later. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I remember I got I to gotta rewind because the Lord gave me a daughter, and then during the, the short two months that my wife and I were together, she conceived again. But it was the same time that I fell into her horrible sin. And I knew it was going to be another girl because I wanted a son. And I was, this was one of my arguments with God. And he had a son. I wanted a son. And when I came to God, I was in a meeting pretty early on. And my dad was ministering out of the book of Zechariah. And Brother Zephyr stood up. And the Lord spoke to me before my wife and I were back together. And he said, I will give you a son, and his name will be Zephyr Nehemiah. And uh, his name is Nehemiah Zephyr, but it is, uh, when he grows up, he'll be Zephyr Nehemiah. And, and, and the name means the comfort of Yahweh and, and first breath. And, and then the Lord gave me another son, Joseph, and because he, he, he told me that he would add a faithful witness. And so I have four children, two sons and two daughters, and the Lord restored the marriage I, I had, and I... I, I could go on forever, but I'll, I'll leave it at that.